Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster who's interviewed roughly 1,400 celebrities over a 30-year period for all major media outlets in Ireland and many abroad. One of my most famous or infamous interviews was with Eamon Dunphy, and it was conducted over a two-day session in 1996, which led to me getting no less than 11 hours on tape of Dunphy at full tilt. Sadly, when the interview itself was published in two parts in an Irish magazine, inexplicably absent was a section in which Dunphy talked about his encounters of the not always warm-hearted kind with what he called the U2 machine, after he wrote their biography, The Unforgettable Fire. For the record, I've put that section back in the utterly uncensored version of the interviews which make up my ebook, Conversations with a Loudmouth, The Eamon Dunphy Interviews. What follows in this podcast is everything Dunphy told me on that day, apart from the point at which, as you'll hear, he asked me to turn off the tape while he told me privately about what he perceived to be the rather extreme nature of Bono's Christianity at one point. Unfortunately, the sound in this tape is not great because my tape machine was malfunctioning, something I didn't notice till I checked the tapes later. By the way, Conversations with a Loudmouth is available from all ebook outlets, and if you want to read the censored version of my Dumpy interview, or part of it, as published, check out my website, jojacksoninterviewer.com. All right, now we've just had you two things, which is, were you set up financially forever? No, I wasn't set up for life. I mean, first of all... Um, still selling, let's say, online yeah. YouTube books. Oh, yeah, it's sold. Yeah, I mean, unlike John Waters, which is remaindered even as we speak, three ninety nine. But that was, I mean, that's a serious writer. Um, it didn't set me up for life at all, no. Um, it, it, I, I, um, I gave all, nearly all the money away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bad snooker players. Bad snooker players. Yeah, and uh, respond, to people. Respond to the, I, 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 yeah. the hot press response. Oh, yeah. Kind of, Neil McCormack. Yeah. Well, I think that... Again, let's look at all the questions I'm asking you are to mm. unveil the hidden agenda yeah. behind this thing. So, okay. case... Well, I think that... Census, that would be the 295, whatever. Errors. Yeah. I think that... that um, uh, I... Paul McGinnis asked me to write the book and the band. I never had crossed my mind. And I was amazed. When Paul asked me to write it, and I actually said no because I want to write on that poster book. Um, and he took me to lunch a couple of times and and kind of said, "Come." So I went to meet the band, and, and why? Well, why I just he said he well he said he asked me because he liked my stuff, my journalism. He said that I, I made him interested in soccer the way I wrote about it. Um, this was this was when I was writing in the Sunday Tribune actually. Right. In the 83, 84. And I think I was writing better about soccer then, in a way, because it was my sole focus. Right. And anyway, he said he liked my style of journalism and he, he'd like, he and the band would like me to do it. And I was flattered by that. But um, at the same time, I, I'm not a, easily flattered. So I, I, although I was flattered, I said, well, I don't know much about rock and roll. Um, and, well, no publishers wanted it. Really? Well, I'll tell you. The, the, there, had, there had been eight, it was just before that they were working on the album the Joshua Tree. Oh, all right. And they hadn't really broken. Globally. No, this was two years before the Joshua oh, Tree came out. So that would be 85, yeah. I'd say. Okay. And I, I spoke to a couple of friends of mine in London in publishing, and 
they just told me that the biggest turkey of all time had just come out a Bruce Springsteen book. And warehouses all over the world were full of this book. Hadn't shifted. Somebody got a huge advance. And he said, no, no way. Don't want to. So I couldn't give it away. I couldn't sell it. That was number one. I wanted to write the Busby book, number two. Then I thought, well, come and meet the band. I went to meet them in Adam's house in Laffarnham. And um, we had lunch. And I said, well, if I do it, guys, no veto, you know, and I want access. No problem. So I said, okay, it'll be a chance to write about four guys, five guys, actually, Guinness included, where they came from, how they grew up. I thought it was, I thought you two were a great Irish story. I mean, they were a great example of sort of what could be achieved here, how you could stay here and be a rock star. Uh, they seem to me to represent, you know, great achievement. And I, you know, I, far from being a big Roger, I love it when I see Irish success. Um, so I thought I'd write a small book that might be very hard to, to sell. Um, but I, it would be a great chance to look at Dublin and show the way Dublin worked and the BP Fallons and the sort of the whole thing with Joe Herlihy and all the Cork guys yeah. and Paul, how you get a rock band started. And so I, that's the way I set out. And for two years, during which time they were in a house with Brian Eno up there working on their album and not unfortunately touring, which would have been really sexy stuff. Right. I, I had no material except right. I interviewed all their families and, their, you know, and they were good. They helped me a lot. Um, okay, I, did, I tried not to take too much of their time because I'm like doing that. But at the end of it all, I had a book. It was a quiet, quiet book. It wasn't, didn't reveal anything about their personal lives. Um, Why? Well. Although they would argue otherwise, they felt that you're a representation of their fates. Of their fates. Well, I mean, I very, very. You had violated or, oh, or, abused, or abused that kind of thing. No, I mean, I downplayed it, you know, and they know that. They know that. This is this is just in that article. Yeah, I know that. Well, you see, the thing about the criticism, first of all, I'd like to tell you what I did. Okay, and then I right. address the thing. That's what I did. I and all of the stuff where there was any personal indiscretion, say, or along the road to do an Adam thing. I mean Adam wasn't just Adam was always a rock and roller. Um and I never wrote anything about that. I, I, it was written down sorry even before then that when they went to play, he went to bed, not alone. I, I, I think that's in it. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, went to play, yeah. That's as much as you said. That's as much as I hey, said. But this. there was heavy-duty religious stuff that yeah. I never... I, I never okay. And it was authenticated. I have the tapes. All right. I kept it out. Because I felt, I felt that really it was beyond the public's right to know. I mean, the, the same principle, that they had put their faith on the agenda in their albums, in their publicity. They had depicted themselves, portrayed themselves as Christians, um, with exception of that. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't go any further than that. Now, when I was researching it, I found out that they were very, very heavy duty in some of this. Um, yeah, but also, I mean, in Bowen's case, a bit more than that. No. What's more than when was Christian? Well, well, I mean, they, they well, it's the depth of your belief and the things you do to proselytize. Um, and as I say, um, 
the charismatic thing and what was he fascistic in the police? No, 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 no. I think he might have just switched it off for a minute, I'll tell you. So so finish that. You were saying in relation to certainly the criticism against the religious thing, you could have gone a lot further, let's say. I I what I did was what, what happened, I think, was this that when I began researching the book, they were if you like projecting one image, which was clean, born again, wholesome type of thing. By the time I'd finished it, which was two and a half years later, and it was ready for publication, they had moved into what you might call their Lou Reed phase. All right. Yeah. Now, this image, this depiction of them, which was their own, and which was backed up by research I'd done, was inconvenient, to say the least. All right. Hey, this book, this is wrong. And so there was a kind of, um, there was what they call, when they talk to Charlie Bird, robust exchanges. <laughs> but they were robust exchanges um, that led to me keeping the book. And now it was criticized by um, all kinds of people. It got some good reviews. It sold hugely. Um, and I got a lot of letters, and I still get letters, curiously enough, from America particularly. From people, it was it was a big seller. There's been a lot of books about you too. None of them ever sold. It was very accessible. It was about it was really about five people. Right. It wasn't about it wasn't written in the style of the American rock writers. The sort of um, what's the American magazine, Rolling Stone. Yeah. It wasn't attempting to, um, as John Waters might say, or Fenton, tell people what they were really about. Really in italics. Right. It was a book about five people and how they got from here to here. But you did take a kind of, uh, I use the word uh, advisedly because I know you don't like phrases. You did take a culturalist approach to it, as in the way you perceive football. And we talked about yeah. this the last time. Yeah. That the sport or the music played is not really an autonomous object. It's, no, it's, not, yeah. it's a reflection of where people come from. Yes. So I found that that was what, to me, overrides all the criticism that was mm. most legitimate about the book. But Dave Fanning said he read it twice in two sittings. And Dave knows them, yeah, and knows them better than any probably working journalist, and knew them from the beginning. And I thought I took that as a compliment, but I, I, I'd say, looking back on it, I'd give myself six and a half out of ten. Right. I might have been more skeptical. I might have been more severe. I might have been more, um, perhaps tougher on them. Um, but I felt that they were, and I feel that they are, you know, fantastic uh, musicians, incredible uh, representatives of their generation. I don't like Bono's preaching and proselytizing and right. going to Sarajevo and all that stuff. Yeah, I don't like that. Um, but could it be a suggestion <clears throat> that there's also a but I, party that needs to be demythified along the way here? Well, Something yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. It's a continuing mm. uh, myth sold to the Irish and the universal well, public. Well, I think and they... The <clears throat> and the reason I asked the question mm. is because I put it to John Waters in relation to his book uh, and BP Found in relation to his book that mm. nobody really does ask questions about, about about what is really going on in the background. Are you guys still the saints that you have been saying right. for 15 years? But well, that would be another book. I mean, I, I was writing about relatively young guys 10 years, 11 years ago. Um, so what I, what I saw 
where young guys, energetic guys, um, in Adam's case, I thought he was a brilliant guy, lovely type of guy, unaffected, um, you know, kind of guy you'd hang out with. Right. Uh, Bono, highly intelligent, um, and very interesting guy in private. Then you'd see him on the television or hear him on the newspaper and you think, oh my God. But actually as a man, I mean, very intelligent. This is the compass aspect. <clears throat> yeah. Back for you just can't take that from him. No, right. I would take it from anybody. Yeah. Why should you? Why should anybody take it from him? Not me. I mean, why should anybody take it from him? But, the, but he, he is the sort of soul of that band. He's a fantastic performer. He ha he's very literate. He has a great ear. He's a remarkable fellow. I mean, he's a remarkable man. And do, you think, do you think the onus is on anyone? And the reason I remember this is because when John Lennon split the Beatles, and you mm. mentioned this the last time, when Lennon, when, no, didn't, when Lennon split the Beatles, he said, and he talked, okay, is there an onus on somebody else to write a book that does undo the U2 part? Did you not do it because you're a close friend of Paul? I think probably that would disqualify me because, you know, you, you can't really write very well about your friends because you're compromised. And you can't, want to be friends with the people you write about as a journalist or indeed as a writer because you're only doing pr right. um all of those jobs require a surgical mind uh clinical mind an analytical sort of disposition and um i like paul i, I think he's a, a, a nice man I mean, we're not are, you not, are you not guilty of contributing <clears throat> to a party that's akin or similar to the charlton party no. And in many ways. No. Well, I'm not. I thought if I was, well, see, music isn't my specialization. Right. And I was fairly criticized for some factual errors in that book, a small number of factual errors. There were a couple. I called the Buzzcocks an, oh, yeah. an Irish group when they were in Manchester group, but I should have known better than that. But I, I'm not really, I mean, I can't, I don't write about music. I don't write right. about, with authority about music. Um, but I'm talking about a cultural party that's like the Charlton thing. Well, yeah. <clears throat> it's, what I was saying to you was John Lennon mm. said that nobody wants to speak out about the hypocrisy, the double dealing, the drugs, the orgies, right. the abuse, the violence, the yeah. homosexuality. It was all mm. part real, the truth about the Beatles. Yes. Because nobody wanted to spoil the party. Yeah, he got right. his he got his wish when your man got a hold of him. Who's our great Mark friend? Chapman? No, the guy in no, no, oh, no. Uh -huh. The biographer, the guy who did oh, Elvis. Goldman. Yeah, Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you see, this is... Possible. And Albert Goldman. Yeah, at some point yeah. in the future, isn't the U2 story going to be told along these lines? And won't we all, including myself and Hawkeyes and you and Waters mm. and BP, be presented as absolute liars and right. people who rode the bandwagon yeah. afraid to burst the blessed bubble? Right. The way that you've attempted to do in relation to Charlton. Well, that's a fair question, Joe. Um, I don't know that... You see, the thing about Jack Charlton is this. I mean, it's a fair question. I'll answer it this way. My belief is that Jack Charlton failed to achieve great distinction. My belief is that you two have achieved great international distinction in their business. And the difference between their real success and the imagined success uh, of the Irish soccer team. I mean, I feel about you two the same way I feel about Paul McGrath, shall we say. I, I, I'm proud of them. I think, they're, right. I think they're great. I mean, I think what they've done, I'll tell you one thing, they're tough. They're very tough people. When you cross them, you get black marks. And I crossed them. And I don't get 
invited to their Christmas parties. Right. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> and but they were fair to enough. I mean, Paul McGuinness and I remain friends, good friends. You had a friendship at one point, did you? No. Did you ever have this fight? No. Oh, but McGuinness. No, I think I'd come second. No, I don't. I never had a fist fight. We had a we had we had violent disagreements about this book. Robust exchange. Robust exchanges again, yeah. Our old friend Robust Exchanges. But um, yeah, already. But uh, no, I mean, we what happened was we had it was a very bad time. The full weight of the U2 machine fell on me. Um it was tough. They tried to mince meet me. Somehow I got out from under. The book got published, and then they were on the cover of Time magazine. The Joshua Tree came out, and hey bingo, I had a best selling book. Okay. So I got a few bob, but not enough to see me oh. through anything. Um, but I got a few bob, and I survived with my reputation intact. Okay. And so, so to end that question about that, we'll obviously seem to have been large in the social history of Britain. Well, I think if they, if you want to know where they, <clears throat> where they started, my book about you two ends before the Joshua Tree comes out. Right. Think about that before any of those grandiose tours, before they were really rich and famous. When I wrote about them, I think they owed um, Island Records about a million quid. They had nothing. And I think anyone who goes to write about them in the future, and McGuinness is subsequently, Mohammed McGuinness, he subsequently said that we're, in his own way, we're proud of the book. That means it was uncontaminated by our, you know, uh, they didn't get to do anything with the book. Any sort of restraint that was exercised was, was exercised by me, because I thought it was the fair thing to do to give the true picture of them. And I didn't want the book to be serialized in the sun. Now, what happened then was like everything else, when you're writing biographies or profiles, as you know, Joe, you can never do enough for the subject. You can say they're the greatest thing since sliced pans and they want more. Now I more or less said in that book, these guys are the greatest things since sliced pans and they want, and they said, can we have some more? And I said, no, fuck off. Now, there was a big bit of it. I was sitting in the shower one night, Carmen just walked in. And I walked, we walked across each other, we shook hands, said, end of story. That happened next. I like the guy, he's good company, I respect him. I like his wife, Kathy, you're feeling. They're nice people, they're friends of mine. Not great close friends, but I liked, liked to see them. Uh, always have a good time with him. And that's all over. Okay. Final guy, different story. I think he's, you know, so I'd, I'd say so. Big time. Because of those, I've no idea. Into tiny areas as opposed to what you could have gone into, <clears throat> you still you transgressed. Yeah, but I see Larry. I mean, Larry. I saw Larry once there at dinner for the Irish team and sat with him and had a few drinks with him, and it's, it's a smashing guy. Oh, yeah. And uh, Adam's grand guy, you know. Okay. As far as I know, they're, they're all nice people. I mean, I think Bono is superstar, you know. But there's a cure for that. Is he God? Uh, <laughs> God, I don't know. We'll have to. He might be. What a terrible thought. You got all the way to heaven after being good all your life. How are you, man? <laughs> no, <quite> man. <laughs> yeah, but my case, I don't think. I think he's all right. But I think he's a. I mean, I, I knew. I got to know his father very well when I was writing the book, and his father's a smashing man. Um, he's a lovely man. He's a real, real character, and. Uh, really unaffected type of man. Uh, I still think, you know, notwithstanding Bono's phone call to his 
Sarajevo and all of those other places. <clears throat> I still think still think they're pretty sort of you know good guys and. And a positive force for Oh, I I do I I think so yeah I saw that I saw them in Lily's I saw Bono in Lily's there with the supermodels one night and he seemed to be having as good a time as I would have done if I'd have been sitting where he was so it can't be all bad. Okay, what about the suggestion that your book was made redundant by John Wallace, which put them at the real and what they really meant sociological, cultural, and semiological constructive perspective? Well, I think on that on that issue, people have spoke. And and you, said? They've said three ninety nine remaindered John Waters. Amos still selling. But you do believe that yours gives a clearer, more prominent representation of the early days of their origins, their origins, like where they come from. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it does. I mean, it's factual and. and I think it's still incredible because you say the majority. I would say ninety percent of your two books have been remade. They have, yeah. They've none of them. So they have a quick shelf life. They have and they're gone. Yeah. Now this book still sells, and it's a decent story. It's a little story about a a band from a small town and that's all it pretends to be it doesn't it doesn't go into the big the big questions in life but then you know people don't want that kind of hi joe jackson here again i thank you for listening to this edition of the joe jackson interviews podcast and don't forget if you want to read my ebook conversations with a loudmouth the aim and dumpy interviews it's available from all ebook outlets